I'm reading Psalms 22 from the New International Version. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, but I find no rest. Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one Israel praises. In you our ancestors put their trust. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were saved. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. Yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you, even at my mother's breast. From birth I was cast on you. From my mother's womb you have been my God. Do not be far from me, for trouble is near, and there is no one to help. Many bulls surround me. Strong bulls of Bashan encircle me. Roaring lions that tear their prey open their mouths wide against me. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It has melted within me. My mouth is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. But you, but you, Lord, do not be far from me. You are my strength. Come quickly to help me. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dogs. Rescue me from the mouth of the lions. Save me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will declare your name to my people. In the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honour him. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel. For he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. From you comes the theme of my praise in the great assembly. Before those who fear you, I will fulfil my vows. The poor will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations will bow down before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him, those who cannot keep themselves alive. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, he has done it. 
Great, so we've got Andrew back here today and he'll be speaking to us um, from Psalm 22. Um, I'm sure most of you met him last night when you tuned in, but just in case you hadn't, Andrew Nichols is uh, the Director of Pastoral Care at Oak Hill Theological College. Prior to that, he was a pastor for 15 years and prior to that, he was a doctor for 10 years. So um, he's an excellent person to be speaking to us. He knows what it's like to be a junior doctor um, and we really look forward to hearing from you today. Um, and before, you, before I hand over to you, um, can I pray for you? Lord God, we thank you so much for Andrew. Thank you that you've brought him to um, this conference. Thank you that he's been able to uh, be with us and speak to us through um, yes, through this um, throughout this weekend. Lord, we thank you for the gifts you've given him. Um, thank you that um, you've given him gifts of knowledge and wisdom. And um, we pray that you would really really fill him with your spirit now as he speaks to us. We pray that the words that he speaks would be words that come from you. And, and we pray that we would be listening with open ears, open hearts, that we would hear your words, that we would receive them and that we would bear fruit from it. Um, Lord, we pray um, that we would also be able to uh, really concentrate, that we wouldn't be distracted or tired. Um, and we pray that this session would bring real glory to your name. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thanks so much, Ella. Uh, it is a real joy to be uh, with you uh, over this weekend. Um, just hearing Ella pray, actually, about my life as a junior doctor and then that prayer that we wouldn't be tired on a weekend, um, that in itself would be a miracle. Uh, I remember when I started out, I was doing, um, uh, I was being paid to work a 90-hour week. Um, the first 40 hours were £6 an hour, and every hour after that was £3 an hour. And But we didn't mind about the money because it was all the, kind of the heroism and the stupidity of it, really. Um, but uh, I remember one, one weekend a registrar sent me home um, on the Friday saying, I don't know what else you're doing this weekend, but cancel it. You need to sleep. You're dangerous. Um, you don't know what you're doing. And he was right, because I was so tired. But I was living in a, in, in a, in a world in which it was hard for me to acknowledge what I was feeling. Um, I, didn't, I needed him to tell me that I was past the end of myself because... I think a couple of reasons. One was that as I was growing up as a child, one of the themes that um, particularly uh, my mum used to um, sort of uh, bring me up in was the idea that the ideal is to live life on an even keel. So to go through life without being too swayed positively or negatively by the stuff that's going around you, just try and you know get through on an even keel. And I think possibly as a doctor, some of the, the medics that I was learning from uh, the example that they gave was of uh, an emotional detachment from people. Um, certainly, if, you, if you're running to a cardiac arrest, you're trying to blot out that sense of panic. You're just trying to think, what's the first thing I'm going to do, A, B, C, and so on. Um, but uh, it seemed to characterise some consultants' lives. Um, I remember um, the ward rounds with a consultant surgeon in one of the provincial hospitals, and his there were always a few extra nurses on the ward round and I, I worked out why when you realised that he would go from bed to bed and, and drop an emotional bombshell and then move on, hello, we've got cancer, we can cure you, and then move on to the next bed. And the nurse would peel off and, you know, try and pick up some of the pieces and catch up later on. There, there was that weird kind of emotional detachment. And, but it didn't seem weird to him. And so one of the reasons for picking this title for this talk is that I, I wanted to think about what it is to love God with our emotions, what does it mean to be uh, serious about loving God with all our heart and soul and mind and strength, to bring everything that we are uh, before the Lord in, in love? And um, I've chosen this psalm because it's one of the most emotional places in the Bible that I know. 
Um, we'll see in a, in, a, in a couple of ways how that works. We're, we're going to look through the psalm, and then I, I want to show us three three things from it. We're going to have a break again, like we did yesterday. So um, um, just over halfway through, uh, we're going to pause for a few minutes. That'll give you a chance to uh, just um, uh, recaffeinate if you need to do that, or recycle some coffee in another way if you need to do that. But we will get we will get. Um, uh, I think a, a good chance to hear how the Lord processes and encourages us to process our our emotions. That that psalm is an extraordinary psalm, isn't it? I wonder how uh, you felt as it was read. There are two halves basically in this psalm. The first is describing an experience of forsakenness by God and people, which is hell. There is an experience of forsakenness by God and people, which is hell. Uh, loneliness can be pretty tough. If you know that feeling, it's, it's, it's a, not a, a good feeling to have. But this is more than that. This is forsakenness. Look at verses 1 and 2. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, but I find no rest. God, he is saying, you have left me here. I'm telling you I'm in anguish. I'm, I'm crying out to you, and I'm getting nothing back. I'm, I'm calling, but you don't pick up. Why have you forsaken me? Verses 3 to 5. It's not that God doesn't have the power to help. Verse 3, you're enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one Israel praises. In you, our ancestors put their trust. They trusted and you delivered them. To you, they cried out and were saved. In you, they trusted and were not put to shame. The point is, uh, my ancestors, they used to get answers when they called and I'm not. That's a hard experience, isn't it, when you feel that you're being singled out to be forsaken and left when other people are having blessed lives and yours is not that's hard look at me verse 6 I'm a worm and not a man scorned by everyone despised by the people all who see me mock me they hurl insults shaking their heads he trusts in the Lord they say let the Lord rescue him let him deliver him since he delights in him no no one regards me as human anymore that's how bad my situation has become says the writer uh, I'm just a, a lump of meat I'm, I'm fish food and you know why they mock me my God, you know why? They mock me because I dared to say that I trust you. I dared to say that I delight in you. I dared to hang my reputation to you, Lord, and you've let me down. So people are mocking me and people are leaving me and people are saying it's ridiculous to try and live a life in relationship with a God who so abandons his people when they most need him. I'm literally helpless. I'm without help. And yet, yet, verse 9, you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you, even at my mother's breast. From birth I was cast on you. From my mother's womb you've been my God. Do not be far from me, for trouble is near and there's no one to help. My whole life has been your doing. You, you made me, you brought me to this point. You created me, you gave me birth. You've taught me to trust you all my life. And I haven't wavered in that trust and so... 
Here I am, taught to hang on to you, only to find when I hang on, you seem not to be there. And so I'm dying. Verse 12, many bulls surround me, strong bulls of Bashan encircle me, roaring lions that tear their prey, open their mouths wide against me. I'm poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax, it has melted within me, my mouth is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. I don't suppose he was really being surrounded by wild animals. He was saying, this is what it feels like to be me right now. The most ferocious animals you can imagine are about to swallow me whole. I'm about to be torn to shreds. I'm terrified and my life is ebbing away and I have no strength. I am all poured out. I'm hollow. My bones are dislocated from hanging here. I'm giving up. I'm dehydrated. I'm going back to dust. I can't speak. And this is your doing, God. The dogs are getting ready, verse 16. Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircles me. What do you think they're waiting for? They're going to eat the meat off my bones once I've gone. And it'll happen any moment now. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. All I can do is pray, and it's doing me no good whatsoever. Isn't the rescue supposed to have come by now? Deliver me from the sword, verse 20, my precious life from the power of the dogs. Rescue me from the mouth of the lion. Save me from the horns of the wild oxen. Deliver me, rescue me, save me. That's what you're for, God, but you've forsaken me. There's an experience of forsakenness by God and people, which is hell. But in the second half of the psalm, it flips completely. So we see there's an experience of joy with God and people, which is heaven. Verse 22, I will declare your name to my people in the assembly. I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honour him, revere him. All you descendants of Israel, for he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. Hey, everyone, you have to listen. You have to listen. I'm going to give you a reason why you need to praise God. Are you listening to my song? Here it comes. He heard me. He rescued me. He paid attention to my cries and he responded with all his power. And then for one verse in verse 25, he speaks directly to God. From you comes the theme of my praise in the great assembly. Before those who fear you, I will fulfill your vows. Lord, I've stopped talking about myself. I could talk about you here with these people who know and understand you. This is, this is wonderful. This is the satisfying life we long for. Now we're praising God together. This is how it was supposed to be. The Lord teaches his people to praise him. And, and I'm passing on what I've learned about how to praise him because he rescues us when there's no hope. The poor, verse 26, will eat and be satisfied. There's place for those in this place who had no place in this life. Those who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. The, 
the rich of the earth and every mortal will kneel before him. They've never had to kneel in their life before because they were the great ones. They were the powerful ones. They were the ones who sent the poor down and kept them there. But in this future, they'll have to kneel. They'll have to humble before him because dominion belongs to the Lord. And he rules, verse 28, over the nations. So all the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him, those who cannot keep themselves alive. Money doesn't stop you dying in the end. Only the Lord can. And if he does, he gives us an experience of joy with him and countless multitudes of other people, which is heaven. And that's the basic shape of this psalm. Two very, very different experiences. One of utter forsakenness and desperation and sorrow and grief and pain and agony and loneliness, forsaken, hell. And the other of complete reversal and multitudes and numbers and joy and the Lord at the centre. The Lord at the centre of everything. The Lord receiving the praise and glory and honour that he is due. So what do we learn from a psalm like this? I don't know what your emotional experience is like right now. You might be on something of a high. Perhaps you've had a really good week at work and all your patients have got better and they've thanked you and appreciated you and the relationships in the teams you have at work have been really wonderful and your own contribution has been acknowledged and appreciated and that's just been so exciting. Or maybe you've had one of those weeks uh, where you missed things and people noticed and even if they didn't notice, you know what went wrong and you feel like you failed and you feel like you didn't have the help you needed from your colleagues or if you were to be honest about it, from the Lord. Maybe you have experiences in your life that you look back on and you wonder how they could possibly have happened. They were so awful. We're discovering at the moment in the lives of our churches that our churches have been places where people have experienced the most terrible abuse. And for all kinds of people for whom this ought never to be so, we're having to recognise that abuse has been part of our experience. And all that goes along with that, all of the questions and the agony and the wondering, why was that not sorted out long ago? Why did the church not organise itself better? Why, why did God not save? The first thing we learn from this psalm is that God's people have always experienced deepest sorrow and highest joy. It was David who wrote this psalm first of all. You can see that at the header at the very top of the psalm. And David gave it to his people to sing. There is an experience which David knew and which many people who followed him knew of darkest despair in abuse at the hands of enemies. And if you haven't felt that, someone in your church has, but you or they are not the first believer to do so. And we know that because their experience is described in Scripture. 
one of the ways in which the Psalms turn out to be an unexpected blessing to people who've experienced that kind of treatment at the hands of other people is that they they didn't know how to put it into words and they read the Bible and say, that's, that's what it was like. The Bible gives us words, it gives us language to understand that experience, to articulate, to begin to communicate that experience in, in Scripture, in the book of God's people. That's where you find words that fit. God understands the experience of abuse. And, and actually, these words are put not just in prose, but in a psalm, in a, in a song. We're being taught that one of the ways in which the Lord equips his people to respond is to pour out lament, to, to sing, to, to open our hearts before the Lord and even before his people and just say how it feels. The hell of being forsaken can be put to words and even put to music. And it's not cancelled out by joy. Here's one of the great mistakes that we make sometimes as Christians when we're trying to handle our emotions is we know there is joy and it's in the second half of this psalm but we somehow want to live our emotional lives as though the second half cancels out the first half and so to be real Christians means that we only really know joy. There are times in the Bible where the Bible emphasises the fact that um, sorrow is replaced by joy. Uh, there are times in the Bible that is realistic about the fact that both sorrow and joy run together. So in 2 Corinthians 6, verse 10, the Christian life is described as being sorrowful yet always rejoicing. You know, there are sorrows all the time and there is joy uh, that's always accessible and available to us. But sometimes, sometimes it's not sorrow and joy. Sometimes it's sorrow then joy. Weeping may stay for the night, Psalm 30. But rejoicing comes in the morning. There are nights for Christian people. There is weeping for Christian people. And the joy has to wait for the dawn. Or John 16, now is the time of grief, but I will see you again and you will rejoice and no one will take away your joy. This psalm is not about how we should be rejoicing all the time. This psalm is about sorrow and then joy. Sorrow which turns into joy. Sorrow in the night before the dawn. And good friends need to be able to have sorrow and joy conversations sometimes at a Christian funeral, for example. We, we need to be able to have conversations which are sorrow and suffering now, forsaken now, lonely now, attacked, enemies, longing, not yet arriving in joy. If you're the kind of Christian whose response to someone who's sorrowful is to try and remind them of reasons to be joyful without really taking the sorrow in or, or taking it seriously. This psalm is a real help to us to, to maybe back off the insistence that somebody finds joy straight away. It may just be too difficult, too serious for that. 
but this psalm is also reminding us that it's not going to be sorrow and then you die and it's all over. It does feel like it all the way through to verse 21 because death feels so close. It's imminent. It's going to end in disaster. But there is joy coming. And and the joy of the part two of this psalm is deep and immense and transformative and it is a taste of heaven and it is the future for those in part one. But even knowing that's coming, it doesn't take the pain away. It doesn't cancel it out. Now, I don't know how your emotional life has been over the last few days. I don't know whether you've been on a high or whether you've been in a trough. I don't know whether you've been on a mountaintop or whether you've been in a valley. But whichever it is, Scripture gives you words. Scripture gives you license to share those emotions with the Lord who knows them already. You don't have to leave the Bible on one side to become a really emotional person and to grow up emotionally. Scripture teaches us what emotional maturity looks like. It teaches us about the deepest of sorrows and the highest of joys. And that can be a real help uh, to us as Christian people living through them and it can be an immense help to us as Christian people living alongside others who are living through them too. God's people experience the deepest sorrow and the highest joy. We're going to take uh, a break there, and then we're going to come back and look at two other things that this psalm really helps us with in terms of our uh, our emotional lives and loving God with all of our being. So uh, we're going to take just a, a five-minute break. Um, welcome back. In uh, part one, we looked across this whole psalm, and we saw the r- emotional range that's here from the sorrow of a kind that is is fitting for someone experiencing even uh, the darkest possible experiences for a human being. And right alongside it, this extraordinary joy after that, which uh, is about everything suddenly coming right and good and wholesome with God where he belongs at the centre as the Saviour and Lord of all. Now, it may be that as we went through this psalm, something in you was screaming out, um, surely the most important thing about this psalm we haven't said yet. Well, that's the next thing. That is, Jesus Christ experienced deepest sorrow and highest joy. You probably spotted, as the psalm was read, if you didn't know it very well already from Psalm 22, that those words with which it begins, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Were not said just by some ancient king of Israel not said just by some Christian person whose whole life was in some sense um, blighted by the kinds of experience most of us have, have no knowledge of. Those words were said by Jesus Christ himself. This psalm has been called the Easter psalm because part one is Good Friday and part two is Easter Day. That line, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, was was said by Jesus with nails through his feet and his hands. He was trying to sing it, even on the cross. And that's because at that moment he was forsaken by God 
and people in a way that exceeds even the darkest of our experiences. And he did it for love. God hasn't yet ever withdrawn his presence and blessings from a living human being to have to endure this world without them, except from Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ did not deserve it. He's the one human being who did not deserve the complete withdrawal of God's presence and blessings. Just like people who receive abuse don't deserve the abuse they receive from their abuser. Staggeringly, Jesus even knows the agony of innocent suffering. And, and it is agony, even though Jesus and the Father were united in this great plan. They'd been united in this plan from before the beginning of eternity. They knew it would come to this. They, they knew it would need Jesus to experience this on the cross, this darkest, deepest of valleys, even though that was their plan. And in a sense, the fact that it's been there from all eternity, the fact that it's always present to the Lord because he's an eternal being gives us hope that this is not just something that's filed away in sort of a dusty filing cabinet of God's experience now forgotten, but the one who stands outside time came into time and lived like this so that we should know for all time he knows what it's like to suffer. He willingly, lovingly, for the sake of joy to come, endured the cross, forsaken by God and people. And what that means is that exactly those moments in life when we feel most lonely, most forsaken, most without hope, most abandoned, at exactly the moment when we think God must be as, as far as he could possibly be from me and my situation, at exactly that moment, in fact, he is right there alongside us. For of all the beings in the universe, he knows better than any exactly what it feels like to be us in that moment. We do find it hard to empathise with the people we see in the beds of the hospital. We do find it hard to know what's really going on in the mind of the person who comes to sit in our room and tell us something of their story in the ten minutes we've got. We do find it hard to manage all the different parts of our being, the brain that's trying to think about what the possibilities are and the heart that's trying to respond to a human being. But God does not find it hard to understand what it's like to suffer in the darkest and deepest of ways. He knows. And, and no, no other religion dares to imagine a God like the Christian God. You know, Islam could not possibly conceive how God could be so close to a sufferer, how God could have that experience in his own eternity, that he is able to draw alongside us. He is always, in their thinking, utterly remote and detached. And no religion has dared to invent a God who is both so powerful that the whole universe bows and obeys his most detailed, intricate command, is sustained in every atom and every subatomic particle by his power, and a God of that size who can also come and be with us and share our sorrows. No one else would dare. Human beings invent gods, but they don't do half as good a job as God himself reveals himself to be. All-powerful, 
and all-knowing and right alongside us in our darkest moments. He doesn't just know our darkest moments, he knows our great joys. And, and the second half of this psalm is Easter Day. That joy of Easter Day is now God's joy, it's Jesus' joy. Because he is now bodily resurrected and rescued from death and now gets to experience the turning of the ends of the earth and all the family. You know, God gets to watch. Jesus is in heaven watching as his plan is fulfilled and people from all over the world are turning to him. Right now, he is doing what this psalm said he would do. He is drawing people to praise God as Lord and Saviour. You know, the, the table that is pictured here in Psalm 22 of, of you know, the, the, the feasting is, is being crammed as more and more people are, are filled around this immense place. And if you're a Christian, you're included. I'm included. We're gathered with this risen Lord Jesus on this great Easter day, this great Easter feast, and that's what we'll be enjoying forever. Jesus went through the cross because this joy was before him and the joy that was before him was the joy of one day being in heaven with all his people. God's people experience the deepest sorrow and the highest joy. Jesus Christ experiences the deepest sorrow and the highest joy. And lastly, and here's, here's how we get to learn to feel more like Jesus feels. Here's how our emotions get to mature. Jesus Christ leads our emotions from deepest sorrow to highest joy. Very often, I feel stuck, perhaps you feel stuck too, but between very narrow emotional concerns. And they're basically selfish. They evolve around what's going on in my life and, and, and the people closest to me. And Jesus Christ widens our emotional range. We, we read this and we understand sorrow better than we did before. And we're appalled in ways that weren't in the top of our minds before we realised what it was like to be Christ on the cross and what, what human beings can go through when we're not going through it. Jesus' death on the cross frees us from being stuck in our little version of suffering and it, and it holds out to us um, the ability to understand suffering that we've never known. But it also frees us from being stuck in that suffering because it holds out to us the joy for which we truly long but in the end can only get to the other side of sin and death where Jesus now is and has been since Easter Sunday. His Good Friday brought him close in our suffering to understand it and it also fixed the end of all our suffering by giving us a place with God's people. And if you look in verse 22, do you see... I will declare your name to my people in the assembly. I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. You who fear the Lord, praise him. Jesus will come. He wants to be as the risen Lord Jesus. He wants to teach us who fear the Lord to praise him as he is now praising him. You may think that you have a rather narrow emotional range. I remember one, one day I was really struck at my inability to feel with people who were feeling. And I said, Lord, could you teach me to cry more? And um, one of my sons now, when I'm watching TV, he, he, turns, he turns to me knowing that he will see tears in my eyes. And he's absolutely right, because I cry anything now. Um, but, but there is something, I think, much more significant than that rather silly description. That, there's mom, that, that Jesus does help us widen our emotional range. He does grow us up to see where sorrow should really be felt and what counts as the deepest joys that are really worth celebrating for all eternity. Not just at the end of the season. Jesus is alive and within us by his spirit. He transforms our experience of being human until more and more it transcends the daily tug on our emotions from our local, limited, narrow concerns until we respond as he responds to the truest, darkest sufferings and the greatest, most significant joys. 
our, our emotional world becomes more invaded by the Lord Jesus. We're drawn by his example towards those in agony, towards those who are forsaken. We want to care for the forgotten unborn. We want to reach out to those who are victims of abuse. And not just because we care compassionately, but because we see how Jesus does and we learn from him to care to care more and to care more effectively and to care more seriously and to care with more and more real hope and joy because the possibility of bringing someone to Jesus is the possibility of ultimate eternal transformation into the deepest joy. We may feel that our emotions are so huge that they dominate us. Jesus' experiences gloriously surpass ours. He knows ours. He can handle ours because he shares ours. We are not so alone as we imagined we were. We are in all things accompanied by the Lord himself. How will we grow to love God more? We learn from Jesus as he teaches us to sing, even from the cross and even in the great assembly of heaven. So let me lead us in a prayer. Our dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this psalm which exposes to us and reminds us of the depth of your capacity to understand our experiences and to transcend our experiences. And we pray that you would teach us to grow in our emotional maturity so that we do feel more as the Lord Jesus felt for those who are forsaken. And we do rejoice more as he rejoices now at the thought of heaven filling with those you're saving from across this world. And in countless other ways, would you please teach us what it really means to love you with all our heart, soul, mind and strength. Because we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.